This is it. The putt to win the tournament. If you sink it, the championship is yours. But on your backswing, your hat falls over your eyes. Is this how you're running your business? Poor visibility because you're still relying on spreadsheets and outdated finance software? To see the full picture, you need to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system to power your growth. With visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, planning, budget, and more, NetSuite is everything you need to grow, all in one place. With NetSuite, you can automate your processes and close your books in no time while staying well ahead of your competition. 93% of surveyed businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Over 27,000 businesses already use NetSuite. And right now, through the end of the year, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program to those ready to upgrade at NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. Head to NetSuite.com slash C-Suite for special end-of-year financing on the number one financial system for growing businesses. NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. Welcome to C-Suite Radio. We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from mewling striped cum to teeth at your throat tiger. Without a little help, some guidance and a whole lot of love along the way. I am Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. Hello, I'm Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers, your storytelling guide. Here with me today is Jesse Harless, the author and author, coach, and facilitator for folks who are recovering from addiction of all kinds, right? That's right. Jesse, thank you for being on the show today. We met, what was it, three years ago? Maybe four? Yeah, I think it was three years ago. At the, at the New Media Summit. I think just when you, where were you at that point of the journey? So that point of the journey, I think that was 2018, right? So 2018, I had uh, just released... Well, I was right before I was about to release my first book, mm-hmm. and that was probably a year into the entrepreneurship journey. So I was probably a year after I left my 14-year career at Verizon. Right. As I recall, you were beginning to see this experience you'd undergone as not just an instructive means for yourself, but a template perhaps, or a measure of how you could show other folks to pursue their dreams, what they wanted to do with their lives, find a purpose as well, and make it, I hate to use the word come true, because that keeps it in the language of dreams, make it real, right? Yeah, exactly. I've been studying under, I had hired my own coach during, you know, when I was working at my job at Verizon, and then I'd start, I started joining masterminds and getting around entrepreneurs. And yeah, so I'd started to, 2015 is where it really, really kicked into gear with working on myself, building you know, built, it's not like I just started that. I've been doing it like 10 years prior, but it was mm-hmm. really serious in 2015. And then 2017, I decided to leave the job and go all in on it. As I recall, we were sitting, maybe it was for lunch, and you said to me, if I was able to coordinate all of this, if I was able to do all these drugs, manage to be somewhat functional, live this entire life, all these skills I learned that I, I've, there's so many skills I learned that I could apply to something so much greater than what I did before, right? That I think, as you said to me, I had this entrepreneurial spirit, but it was put to the wrong purpose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I had a lot of entrepreneurial characteristics as a child and growing up and, and definitely in my addiction, full-blown addiction. I mean, what I mean, when I say addiction, I mean physical addiction, because we all have addiction. We all have mm-hmm. emotional addictions, but just the physical addictions that were manifesting drugs and alcohol. Yes, I put a lot of work into that. So when I got into recovery, I just used that will, that fire that drive towards my building my purpose, my life. I think it's so fascinating because we we do so much in in service to what we want. But I think as your book speaks, if you want the wrong thing for yourself, and we're not necessarily talking morally and ethically wrong here in the big sense, but even just the wrong thing for what you need, right? Because as you argue, addictions are a way of numbing and treating the pains we have and trying to just get by. If you put all of your, in your case, entrepreneurial spirit in service to that, if that becomes your dream, you can succeed at it, right? But what are you actually getting out of your life? 
Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. I mean, in, you know, it's, I think a lot of people are, you know, trying to do something for their life, but they're really still stuck in a lot of these emotional addictions and they're stuck. I mean, it's sometimes climbing the wrong ladder, climbing the wrong mountain. And so that's pretty much what I discovered in my recovery journey that I was actually climbing the wrong ladder, but all of it was used to be able to then serve others in the capacity I am today. But I definitely was, was definitely um, misguiding myself in many ways. What did that moment, not just the realization, but the moments before it like feel like, so you're, there's the mo- there's the effort of climbing a ladder amount of something monumental that you're trying to do. What was that experience like first? And then what was the moment where you recognized it wasn't the right one for you? What were those like? Well, when I was 22, I, I was in a serious position. I had just been arrested by agents, federal agents, and I was my life was definitely taking a turn for the worse because of my physical addictions to drugs and alcohol. I had many other addictions, emotional addictions and trauma, but that was what was manifesting that was causing problems was the physical addiction. So I was, you know, basically started to, I got a full-time job and went back to school and I finished an undergrad in psychology, and then I got promoted in the company, and then I went for my master's in clinical mental health counseling, and I was doing all these things. It's not that that wasn't what I was supposed to be doing, but it wasn't what I was supposed to be doing. <laughs> it's a conundrum, isn't it? Yeah. How, can you can you describe how that feel how that felt for you? So, as I know you speak about it in terms now of I had to go down this path I took, but the sense as you as you've just articulated of. I shouldn't have needed to do this, but I needed to. Yeah, because there's a justifiable reason I could say that the clinical mental health counseling degree was actually helping not only for me to like, how do I therapeutically help others, but it was therapeutically helping myself. And even in with all the nine years of school, I still wasn't touching the deeper trauma. So that's what I mean that that path doesn't mean it was the correct one because it wasn't until years after that that I figured out what was really going on and driving my behavior, which was the underlying traumas and emotional injuries. There's a line early in your book. There's quite a few I highlighted, but this is the first one that comes to me. You wrote, recovery is not always about learning something new, but unlearning old ideas, beliefs, and stories that no longer serve you. Yeah, correct. Exactly. And there's something so powerful in, I think, our everyday life, even how we adhere to stories, who we are and why, and accept them. We decide that those are right and then live by them without remembering to question or revise them, without thinking that we have any power over the way things, not just the way things are, but the why we think they're that way. For you, when you look back at who you were when you started on this path, because so I know in narrative and fiction ways talk about, you know, the origin point or whatever. Do you, in looking back at your own story, do you feel there was an origin point or do you feel it was perhaps closer to uh, Peter S. Beagle would argue in, say, The Last Unicorn, that there are no beginnings or endings because life existence doesn't end. It just is. You know, it's easy for anyone to say like, oh, you know, I, oh, I, I was climbing the wrong mountain. I was, uh, I, I should have been doing something else. But like, sure. there's also a lot in my book that says nothing is wasted. And so everything that I did has been, is, is being used right at this moment. Even if it was something that wasn't serving me, it's being used right in this moment. So I think in many ways, the path I chose was I was doing the best I could in the moment. That's all we're ever doing. And so in retrospect, I guess the question is, was, was it worth me putting myself in six figures of student loan debt to, to discover things that I discovered after? <laughs> I was on the phone with my coach before because I've gone through quite a lot myself and I needed someone who wasn't a therapist, someone who was more future focused to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And as you and I have discussed, my father is in his last few months, last two weeks, perhaps. And yes. there reaches that time where you could dwell on how things were and how they made you what you are today. And there's a time when you can look at that and go, right, but what would I like to be? What do I want to be? What do I desire to be? A little further on, you say you might have had or heard a loved one say, you need to toughen up, you're too sensitive, life's hard, get used to it. We're often programmed, you argue, by our school system and authority figures to believe life is about competition and survival of the fittest. So we mold ourselves to suit a narrower way of being, right? Right, exactly. We're often led by people who are doing their best at the time, but they're, they're wounded. And so we're getting direction from people that also never dealt with their own emotional injuries or traumas. So we're just being led 
and a direction of the people around us, but it doesn't mean that it's the right direction or the right advice or the right, you know, path for yourself. And it takes a while to start to realize that you're surrounded by those types of people. And you might have some people in life who are not like that, but for the most part, that's what's happening. And then that's where the unlearning and the really discovering into your own being, into your own body, into your own heart, you know, who do I really want to be? Who do I choose to be? And that took many, many, many years um, after, quote unquote, I had success to figure out. What makes your book and you, if not you, then who, right for people with addiction? Well, if we define addiction as any behavior that you do that you do repeatedly that has negative consequences, then I would say my book is for everyone because that's how I wrote it. Yeah, you're going you're gonna to hear the, you're going to see and read and feel like, okay, I see where his original traumas started. And then I see why he picked up physical addictions and then, and then how he got well. And I see that in the book really clearly. And so the question is, if someone is living with food addiction or someone is living with codependency or someone's living with anger addiction and these other emotional addictions, addictions to people, addictions, you know, so let's say emotional addictions, mm -hmm. you know, that would make the book be for everyone. And so the, the physical addictions to alcohol and drugs and caffeine and all these things, th those are just, that's the surface layer. And the cool part about when I start doing those, I could easily or start to eat is easier to see the emotional addictions that were causing the problems the, let's call them the core pains, the actual causes of the pain, the root, in this society, we often skip the root of the problem and we address the symptoms. And then we do that for many years, decades. So the question is, you know, hey, is what I'm doing today, controlling, avoiding pain, that addiction playing out in my daily life and the way I treat my children and the way I treat my wife and the way I show up to my job. And so I gave a guide in the book that will help someone on those journeys, whether it's the emotional addiction journey, the physical addiction journey, and so, so I didn't pigeonhole myself into a book that's just for people who struggle with alcoholism or substance abuse disorder. You know, this is for all people that are on the journey of trying to take a hard look at what were these core pains that are still playing out in my adult life today that I'm not even seeing. What do you think the hardest part of, or most difficult part of that conversation is pertaining to addiction? Is it simply the acknowledgement that you have one? Yeah, I think it's the, the changing the definition of addiction to understand what it is instead of pointing at the guy who's drinking the bottle, who's homeless, to point the figure back at us and say, wow, like I actually have a control issue. I actually have been avoiding my pain since 11 years old when my girlfriend broke up with me or my dad and mother split up at, at seven. You know, these are the core wounds that actually today is what I'm doing today is I'm still, those emotions, in, those emotional injuries are still playing out today in my daily life. That's why I drink obsessive caffeine or, or eat food to fall asleep at night. So these are the things that I think where I've had my epiphany to look at the truth of why did I really cause so much destruction in my life. So a little bit of the neuroscience. Addictions, essentially, regardless of whatever the stimulus is, have roughly the same effect. They give you a bit of a boost, a little dopamine, a little serotonin, enough to smooth over the things you don't want to feel, or at least dull them, right? Yeah, exactly. So you get your highs or you get the ability to just not feel at all. Yeah, we do the same thing with anger. We do the same thing with exaggeration. Anything to live the life that isn't ours. Anything to numb out. Anything to numb out the pain of our brother not tucking us back or not having a close relationship with the father before he passed. You know, like all these things that are happening in our real world where we find ways to emotionally numb out. And so you can numb out with alcohol or you can numb out with avoidance. So it's just kind of taking another look at like what really is driving my behavior. So I'm curious because drugs and alcohol, legal or not, have been a significant part of human culture for a long time. Where, what purpose, if any, do you think substances and practices that can be addictive have in society? Because there's clearly been a need, certainly, but. Well, there's many substances that are come from plants that are non-addictive, that sure. have a less capacity towards addiction that are very healing, you know, and that's why harm reduction is such a critical piece of us mm -hmm. getting out of the mess we're in. So, you know, whether that's cannabis or whether that's plant medicines like ayahuasca or some of these you know, psilocybin studies that are happening from MAPS, 
is to take a look and ask ourselves the question, why, why are these plants put here? And so, you know, when you, when you take them and then you, when you take them and you turn them into cocaine or you turn them into like in the lab and methamphetamine or something, now we're talking something different, but in the natural form and the state that they're in, I think that there's, there could be uh, many benefits as we're seeing in the studies that are coming out from John Hopkins and, and different universities. So I think, you know, there, there's a place, but you know, is there a place for methamphetamine and, and, and fentanyl? Um, not so sure, but I would say that there's a place for some of these plants that have been here for thousands, if not millions of years. Mm. So it becomes then a question of the purpose behind the act, right? It's the intention. It's yeah. always about intention, no matter what it is. So if you're using cannabis to numb out your life every day, you're using that in a way that's not really intentional. You're doing that to numb out because you can do that without cannabis, but you're using cannabis to do that. But if you're using cannabis to get off opioids, because that's what you're doing every day, or if you're using cannabis because it helps you to meditate, well, what's wrong with that? That's your intention. So, you know, so it's just kind of a different paradigm shift in the, from the black and white thinking that we have today that's causing a lot of death. It's almost like there's this delineation between I need this too, or I need this in order to, and I would like to use this too, right? And that's not the only line of delineation, but I know from my own experiences, I was on painkillers, opioids a few times for surgeries. The first time I quit Percocet after three days, and I was glad I did because I'd heard stories, and it was a painful recovery. It was a shoulder realignment surgery. But from my cervical spine surgery, I was put on Dilaudid, which is a morphine derivative. Mm -hmm. And it's powerful. And particularly since it doesn't so much dull the pain as dull your ability to care about anything. So there is pain, there is emotion, there's sensation, but it's irrelevant. And it's fascinating. That's the addictive part of the opioid, particularly, that it applies to the thing you need it or prescribed it for, but then it applies to so many other things. So the brain starts to build this story up. You start to build the story up of, oh, well, it's useful here too. And it makes this a little easier too. I remember when I clicked the Dilaudid, I had about a week and a half of withdrawal, which was miserable. And I was put back on a leave afterwards for inflammation. And my system's pretty sensitive to drugs. So even a leave, I'd get a bit of a high off of. And after about a year, I noticed I uh, have flat feet. So hiking is occasionally very painful, even with orthotics. I take the leave during the hike just to dull that. But it also, like ayahuasca or cannabis or other substances, put me in that kind of zen state. And at some point, it went from I'm taking this for the pain I need to live with to this puts me in a state where it's easier for me to work. And then I need this mm -hmm. in order to work. And then a year and a half later, I'm sitting there going, why am I buying this? Right. Is this for the physical joint pain that I still need to get treated, that I am treating, but the stuff coming in, the new orthotics, et cetera, or another week and a half new or whatever. So from taking that over a month to accommodate to new physical equipment, orthotics and so on, because I don't know if people are familiar with the kind of the life cycle flat feet. This is probably a little boring for some folks, but when the structure of your feet are wrong, it screws over your entire skeleton. It causes nerve pain, muscle pain. It's immensely difficult after a year of it. And with orthotics, eventually they degrade. You spend hundreds of dollars to get new ones and the cycle begins. So you add drugs on there or to other trick ways of, you know, numbing that painful part. And in my case, because the drugs helped for a creative part of my work, the need changed. The intent, as you argued, the purpose changed. Right. And the day you try to quit, and I think as you probably could you know, identify with too, there's so much fear, right? What if I can't do it anymore? Right. Because you've so deeply associated one thing with the other. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's just like anything that you want to give up that you've been using for a long time to manage the pain. Because at the root of it, there's a fear and the pain. That's why you're using it. <laughs> it's so fascinating because I, my family does have addiction behaviors, food, et cetera. There's a lot of trauma in the back. And not to say the trauma always leads to addiction, but it definitely is an indicator. And I was very, because of my asthma and other conditions I live with, very attentive to alcohol, to most drugs, particularly inhaled ones. But as alert as you can be in so many places about, I'm not going to be addicted to this. I'm not going to be addicted to that. It's not going to be food, right? We, I think as you're arguing here, in a way, we're all conditioned to some extent to find external palliative measures to get by because they're easy, they're available, they're more affordable. You know, it says a lot, I think, that we live in a country where 
painkilling drugs are cheaper than medical than mental health treatment. Of course. That's why McDonald's is cheaper than apples, organic apples. <laughs> I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent, but I, I was in a fight with a vegan capitalist one day, or pardon me, vegan venture capitalist. And I had to explain to him what a food desert was. I said, it's great that you're investing in all these measures that allow for a better, more environmentally sound world. But the price of your produce won't ever, will prevent it from being purchased by people who also need it. Either from getting there or from being purchasable when it's there, right? If that apple, organic apple pound is $4 a pound, and I have to feed four people in a family, what am I buying? The organic apple or pancake batter? Yeah. And the question is, why is the apple $4 a pound? Probably the hardest part anybody running a business comes into when a client comes to them, when a person in need comes to them. Because let's be honest, when someone comes to you for what you provide, they're in need, right? Mm -hmm. There's a place they want to be and they're not there yet. They want a better life and they need help getting there. It's hard because they come to you with all of their needs at once, usually, not just the thing they want to buy from you or they think they need from you, but the rest of them too. When you coach, when people come to you, what's that initial experience like? Is it now buying the book or do you have a first session with them? What's your initial journey with them, like those first two steps? Well, and, and, and also I want to say that some people do come to me with their high-level executives and very, very high-level entrepreneurs. Sure. So it's people who are along the journey that have already made it, but they're, you know, they're, they're, maybe they're overeating or maybe they're, um, you know, Jumping into a recreational drug, they they prefer not to dive so deep. So mm -hmm. I have people who come to me for that, all the way to the person who's a couple of years into their journey of recovery, and they want to now start a construction business, and they want to have the first initial steps of the journey. And then when they start to talk to me, they realize that I'm all about trauma healing. <laughs> and then we start <laughs> getting into the real real stuff. But when they come to me, they think they're coming to me for like, okay, how do I become an entrepreneur in recovery? How do I write a book. How do I do this? But when, when they start to work with me, they realize that we're going to build a, a toolkit. We're going to be getting to the trauma. Right. To your point, I want to be successful in your question is, but why do you want the success? Right. Why do you want the success and what's blocking you? And what's yeah. blocking you is, is easier to, for me to see than them because that's the journey that I'm on daily. Particularly in the world of coaching, of counseling, of guiding, you do find a lot of people who have lived the experience they teach. I think to your point, partly because they've had to go through the day in, day out of it, and if not just seeing the value of what they've learned for themselves and for others as well, but can appreciate just how much awareness that demands, right? Yeah, I mean, in many ways, I'm extreme. I've done very, very extreme things in my life. And, you know, that extremism sometimes is a big benefit because I go places other people won't go as a self-scientist. So I'll do things on a scientific journey to figure out things, and then I'll come back with my findings, and then I'll, I'll share them with the people. And eventually it became shared in a book, but I've been doing it without a book for many years. And then writing this last book, I gave 30 action steps that I had found useful. Now there's more action steps, but those are 30 that you can get started with. And, and that's really where I, I built in a way that I love routines. And some people will hear that and go, I hate routines. I hate doing this. <laughs> but that was one of the superpowers I have. So that helps me to help others who are the Geminis, who are those all over the place, the brainiacs, they just don't like routines, they're rebellious. That's cool because I'm rebellious too, but I also like routines. So I can help people to build simple routines for their for their relationships, simple routines for their addiction. It's funny. I, I've been coaching creators for years and quite often the idea of routine is terrifying to them. Well, it's going to stultify my creativity. I want to say this first before I forget it. Are you familiar with Oliver Sacks, the neuroscientist? Because he, particularly as he progressed in his years, would keep these diligent journals through his illness, through his ailments, the drugs he would take, and the experiences of them. There's one set of pages where it's him documenting what's going through his mind until it's just actual scribbles on the page. He was so fascinated by how that dissolution of consciousness occurred in the moment. And I do think, you know, it, it speaks, when you convey or describe your own journey here, it speaks to me of that kind of person whose work is self-discovery and then using that self-discovery to say, here's what I learned and what you can take without having to do everything I did, right? Right, exactly. You can just take what you need, leave the rest. But some of that, especially the one-on-one -on -one journey with me, I mean, there's going to be a lot of much, much deeper work that probably they didn't even know was available because of the 
definitions and the teachings and the psychologies we have today are, are limited in many ways. Um, so, you know, they're going to come to me and, and understand that I've, I've, I've took the journey of clinical mental health counseling. I've, I've took the journey of studying psychologies and all of them have a benefit in different ways, but I've also found things outside of those mediums that can be really helpful too. Imagine an online community where science meets social. Analyte Guru from Thermo Fisher Scientific is a forum where you can talk with your colleagues worldwide, ask questions, swap suggestions, and compare notes. You'll get insights into equipment and techniques, and maybe even answer a riddle or two. You can also sign up for informative webinars. Join the conversation today at analyteguru.com. I almost think sometimes the central value of coaching is the moment when people come to you all, this is, and say, this is the way my work is, my way my life is, the way my relationships are. Here are all the stories of who I am and why. And then you as the coach go, okay, but why? And would you like them to be that way? Because something here brought you in this, brought you to me. And I've worked with quite a few creatives. The word routine terrifies them, but ritual somehow satisfies it's so fascinating when you think <laughs> that that right. slight divide is all, but the idea of ritual tapping into something more spiritual. And it's funny that the language itself would induce a different state of mind or opinion about it. It does, I think, go back to the idea of the power of story and how we, sh we use the words and thoughts we have from ourselves and from others to shape who we've been and what we'd like and what we would like to be. Do you find in this moment where people come to you work one-on-one, -on -one, there are certain commonalities in what they do want to talk about and what they believe to be true and what you have to help them work to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people come to me with their, you know, they'll tell me what's going on and what they like to work on. And it becomes very clear as the conversation continues that, that act, that's actually not what they want. Even though we did an intake session before we started the coaching and now we're two sessions in, it's, it's actually something much different but they didn't have a safe container. They didn't feel safe with anyone ever in their life before to go to the places where we're going to go. And that's why they never went there. It's interesting you use the word container because it almost implies they have this, there's a sense that they don't feel contained. They're almost using the drugs to kind of create or the, the addictions to create some type of artificial boundary where they don't have one otherwise, a limitation that they don't need. Yeah. And again, you know, I meet people on the journey that are already in a good place usually with addiction. So, well, quote unquote, when I mean addiction, I mean talking the physical addictions, sure. but emotional addictions, they have no idea they even have those. So that's the types of language that I start to bring into the re coaching relationship. And that really sparks the deep work. I know in my own life, I had to learn this through my twenties. There'd be moments where I wanted to fight with people that had nothing to do with whatever was going on in my experience of them. I just wanted to fight. And I had to acknowledge that it's not just that I want the high out of the fight. It's that I do have anger and other feelings like that, that are looking for a place to reside and to right. be and to breathe. And I was a fat kid. I didn't exercise. I was, you know, we were an Eastern European family where food was used to cover everything. And since the family came from a history of starvation and fear and persecution, bounty was, a, was not just a sign of physical wealth and well-being success. It was security. My friends used to joke that they would never starve. They could never starve coming to my family house. Mm -hmm. There would always be too much because right. prior to that, there had never been. So, yeah, I was, I think even in grad school, maybe 230 pounds. And I'm only 5'11". That's a bit too much. But... When I started working with a trainer, and particularly when he explained to me the difference between this pain is pain, that pain is muscle healing, right? There's a difference between I tore the muscle, micro tears, and I tore the muscle from the bone. Yeah. And you have to learn physically what that is, but emotionally too. Like, you know, that I can work on these things, think about them, act off of the way I'm feeling, but there's a way to exercise, to do the ritual, to do the routine 
without injuring myself or anyone else further. And that's hard. Right. What heart do you think, do you, do you feel you provide when people come to you? As I was mentioning, when people come to me in the one-on-one journey, they're going to come to me in a place of different desires and purpose. But then when we start to get working, they're going to realize that I'm going to take them to places that no one's ever been able to take them to. And the only reason I can take them to those places is because I've been to those places and I'm able to hold that safe space for them to go there and also help them to come out of it, to live their life and take care of their family and all of it, and their business. So, so it's really the ability to help someone in a way process pain and trauma and the real core of the root of what's going on in their life in a way that maybe they haven't heard before. Maybe they haven't went that deep. Maybe they haven't felt like they, they could go there and they didn't feel the psychological safety. So that's really what I do for someone. And, you know, that's on the outside. It looks like I'm a coach and an author and a trainer and a facilitator, but really what I am is someone who's going to help someone along the trauma healing journey, the core injuries that happened when they were young and help them to really start living their life truthful to their inner child. I think that last part is so important because we try to abandon that or hide it or bury it or forget it. That younger, weaker, ignorant, more vulnerable self. Is there a story that stands out to you, an experience of someone you've worked with that still stays with you to this day? There's many stories. That's why they do the work I do is because of the stories. And it started way before I started being professionally paid to do coaching. I've been coaching people for many, many, many years. But if I recall, you started that as part of your own. Well, yeah. I mean, I was 22 when I got into, when I was. <laughs> on the probation and coming on getting back into reality and, and joining the human fa- race again and, and, and figuring out what I need to do next. And yeah, I mean, I was starting to work with people then for free. And then that happened, that went on for about 10 years, 12 years. And eventually I started doing it professionally. And, you know, there's so many stories I can tell you one that stands out. I would say, well, I think one that happened in the past was, Someone who was uh, an executive for a pharmaceutical company, and which is ironic, <laughs> working with me coming from a pharmaceutical <laughs> company as an executive. And, the per- yeah. and this person really came into it with what she thought that she needed to work on. And she was really convinced that that's what it was. And so, you know, I, I think that once we started working together, she realized that that was the surface layer of what was going on. That was what was manifesting physically in her world. But when I started to work with her and take her through the journey of, let's start at four years old. (laughs) Let's start at 10. Let's start at 12 and 14 and 22. She started to realize that, okay, oh man, these are where the core problems happen. These are where the pain happens. This is where the trauma happened. And this is what launched my whole life in the direction to avoid the pain. And so that is something I found a theme, a theme in many people's lives. It was a theme in my life. And by the end of our coaching journey, she had built rituals into her life and found a way that she could keep her job because a part of it is a lot of people want to jump the ship and they want to start a whole new career. But mm-hmm. she realized that she can continue what she was doing. And on the side, she could meet all these desires and needs of her inner child and, and feel the satisfaction and build rituals to honor herself on a daily basis. And that's what we did over the journey. And she was someone that was completely like agnostic, like, like I'm not doing any of that hippy dippy stuff and all that. But, you know, a few months in, she realized like, those are the stories and the programs from the past and we stay conditioned to them. Curious. Why do you think those stories ossify by the time we're 15, 20, 25, that we, we cease to change or revise them? Well, because it's easier not to change them and the world's not going to punish you because we live in an individualistic society that doesn't honor collectivism, it doesn't honor tribes, it doesn't honor being a brother and a sister to each other. So you get rewarded for being um, individualistic. In a sense, so long as you can function according to what is needed from you. As long as, long as you can function, you're not disrupting anyone. Yeah. You know, you're going to get your whole life in, you know. Well, in the first part of your book, that is how you... You had a successful, fairly successful career in your 20s and teens, yes. despite everything you were doing. Well, yeah. I mean, I was successful in the, what I was doing with the addiction of the physical addictions to opioids and alcohol. And then when that came to a crashing halt, I became even more successful in those areas. But mm-hmm. I was, again, I thought I thought I needed to chase that 
that carrot, like, oh, this is what's going to make me happy if I have the degree, if I have the money and all this stuff. And, <laughs> and I was taught very, very good lessons in the last few years to show me the truth of that, that that was only covering up pain from my dad leaving at four. It was more abandonment trauma, you know? So if I have the degree, if I have the money, you won't leave me. And so I had to get these, I had to get really honest with myself and really feel the pain of that. Worth, I'll have intrinsic worth. I'll have worth. You'll validate me. You'll say I'm doing good. Even about my recovery. Oh, you have 15 years of recovery and, and you build a spiritual ego around it. And when there's someone who is like doing things outside of the path, you deem the right path. You are, you have this spiritual ego that had developed and I had to crush all of that and smash all of that and have that ego dissolution to be able to get honest and really start feeling my pain. I'm on the right way. Why can't you? Right. And that's, and that's, that's, that's really just living from the mind. You write in the book that your purpose doesn't have to be some big existential idea. When I coach creatives and entrepreneurs, we like talking about and the people who come to them are the people they write, the characters in some cases, people are characters too. Let's be honest. We often talk about needs, wants, and desires. What immediately satisfies needs, right? I need this to happen. I need that to happen. Wants, the things I want to achieve in the near future, and then desire, the why, the purpose, the dream, the drive. Because fundamentally, that's what everything need and want is in service to. It's why they come to me, why they come to you. And I remember a conversation I had with a client where he said, well, I need some articles rewritten. And this was for a fairly successful multi-million dollar company, thought leadership coaching at high level in the financial industry, but lost half his business in one year because the company decided to internalize it. We can replicate everything you do. We don't need to pay you a multi-million dollar contract to do that. It became apparent to me that he had never needed to do any actual branding or conversation or thought on what his clients wanted from him, why they come to him, because he hadn't needed to right? They just, a couple came to them, had that going, coasted, got by on the relationships that validated, provided money, provided success. I remember asking one day, I said, I know you're telling me you want just copy, but what I'm seeing from this, from the story you're presenting me is a sense of self that is unclear, of a business whose purpose is unclear. And because you don't have an absolute sense of who you are and what you provide on the big and little sense, any copy we write is just going to be rewritten three months from now, right? We could spend thousands upon thousands of dollars branding for you on the small scale, or we could start at the very beginning and talk value and talk about why you do this, what the purpose behind it is. And unfortunately, he didn't want to. You know, he was more willing to lose more business than to do that journey. And I think there's a sense that there's, a, there's an element of timeliness to this, right? I'm sure you've had people who probably could have benefited from you, but when they came through or when you thought to speak to them wasn't the right time. How do you coach or advise those kinds of people? Well, there's many people who, who read something I posted or they come across my work or they listen to a podcast and they get on and we have the most amazing conversation and they're like, yeah, I want to do this. And, and they never do it because <laughs> it's really, really hard work. So that's why, you know, this isn't like, Hey, I'm going to pat your back and you're just going to like build your business and, that's not the coaching I do. So once they realize that, a lot of people say, oh my God, I, I, I want to stay in my emotional addictions. I want to stay what I'm doing with what I'm doing. And I'm not ready to, to lose my identity. And it's not that, I, it's not that I'm, I'm forcefully doing that, but that's what happens when you really get down to these core conditions and core pains. And you start to recognize the way that you've been abandoning yourself every single day. And some people, they're not ready to do that work. You play off of the idea of fear in the book. You have a model called fears, F-E-A-R-S, but you speak particularly about our own weird relationship with fear. Yeah, exactly. So I, I chose to use fears despite even people telling me not to do that. And that's my rebellious nature to say, well, I'm going to do it anyways. And so, you know, I fear is something that is actually not the root of the problem. What you're seeing on the surface layer with, with people is usually anger, passive aggressiveness, depression, anxiety, that's just the surface. Underneath that is the fear. And so that's still not the actual cause of what's happening, but the fear, at least we can get to that level. It's very powerful. We can start to understand how fear is actually running our lives. So I figured if I made a model that said like, hey, fears can be actually a good thing because it's going to guide you to the causal emotion. It's going to guide you to where this is actually coming from. 
it's going to be great. So my fears acronym is just these action steps to start to get to the truth. And so, and I use all different types of ways to get there. You appreciate this. The, the screenwriting guru, Sid Field, was a, a mentor of mine. He's passed now, but he would always ask, what are they afraid of? And that was never the point of the question. The point was never to just answer, well, heights, dogs, mountains, cold air, sneezing, you know, whatever the surface level fear was. And he'd have us initially document, okay, here are the fears expressed, manifested, characterized in these works. Asking what you feared led to what you cherished and why, though. Because fear always spoke to loss, what you didn't want to lose. And if you asked why a character or person is afraid of something, truly ask not just the, all right, you know, I'm afraid of big spaces, small spaces, snakes, whatever those things are. If you go beyond the initial beginning stories, the ones we tell ourselves every day just to get by, why that thing are you afraid of, right? I embarked on a path where I decided not to go into corporate. I had worked as a consultant. It was very profitable. I hated it in my 20s. I'd had this whole dream of being an ad executive, being a creative director, you know, as the path I wanted in life. And I forget the exact moment, but I started, I'd been writing throughout all of college and into grad school. I went to grad school to be a writer, where I realized that if I continued chasing that path of success, of practical, regular success, I would never write. Right. And I can't go more than five days without writing. So while I might be good and great at all this other stuff, and it might be safer and easier and simpler, and, so many, and in so many ways less terrifying, the far more frightening thing to me that I had to accept and understand, working with mentors, working with my fellow writers in the act of just doing the journey, you know, writing. I wrote the same book three times over 10 years. <laughs> I know what stubbornness and persistence are like before I finally learned the fourth time how to write it. Because, and I wanted to say this before, fears are feelings and expectations that we're afraid will become real. We feel or expect something to be so we do or don't act accordingly. And I wanted this book to be so many things. I needed it for me to be so many things. And letting go of all of that instead of what I want, finding who the characters are, or the people are, in your case, who your clients are, helping them like, step past all of their fears and expectations, everything they think they want, they need to listen, right? To hear what's inside. Because that's that that child, that inner child's voice, as you described it, is probably so much quieter, mm -hmm. even though, as you say, it's driving so much of the behavior. How did you learn to listen to that own inner voice, that own child within you? The, the, the one that actually sits, you know, sits at the heart, that is your genuine needs, wants, and desires, and your why. How did you learn to listen to that? Well, it's just like in the book, I talk about this, the, the journey of trusting my intuition and, and that is the inner child. And I just started to, you know, do that even during the worst times of my life. And I just noticed a trend that when I actually listened to that, that inner child and, and acknowledge it and not abandon it, I have incredible fruitful experiences and life-saving changing uh, moments of my life. So, you know, I became really dedicated to listening probably about a year ago, two years ago, two years ago, it started to really start to be like, okay, I really got to pay attention to this a lot more. And then really since COVID and it, it's become my number one aim is to have conversations with the inner child and let it talk about the wounded self as well. And be able to just have this conversation to acknowledge that this, this inner child is there, whether I like it or not, if I want to ignore the inner child, that's fine. Good luck. Because you'll be having lots of emotional addictions. But when you start to acknowledge it, you start to realize that inner child is actually where you're actually, to me, your divine path is. I'm curious, when you first drew the attention of the feds, you had been shipping a lot of drugs, prescription and otherwise through the mail and buying them. And they were convinced that you were a, some type of drug dealer or kingpin pushing a lot of this to sale. They were terrified, horrified that you were consuming all of it. But you had a choice one day when in the middle of this routine, this ritual you would go through, it arrives at the, was it UPS, right? Yeah. And you get a call one day and they tell you the box, the package with what you expect inside is not there at UPS, but at the post office instead, the federal post office. And you had this feeling as you write in the book that you, something's wrong. I shouldn't go, but you did anyway. Whose voice was that? That was the wounded self. That was the that was the ego wounded self part of me that said, "You got to go no matter what. 
because you've always done this. This is the path you've always chosen. And I listen to that as to listening to my inner child, my guidance. Do you think, not that you can know with certainty per se, well, perhaps you might, do you think you'd be doing the work today that you do if you had not gone to the post office that day? Well, I think they would have got me because they had the evidence. Sure. I think they would have got me another way. But let's say if that, let's say if they didn't, let's say if I didn't go, nothing happened. I think there's not a chance that I'd be doing the work I'm doing today because I don't think I would be alive. So I wonder then if the inner child was just saying, don't go, or if it's some part of it, there's that little bit of bravery that says, you know what, you need this. Yeah, I think I think it was a combination of the both in that circumstance because there was that was kind of going to set me up for what I wanted to avoid doing, which is just start to find myself again, which was to get to the truth of why I'm in so much pain. And so that that was the catalyst. And at a higher level, <laughs> my guidance knew that this is the path, this is what needs to happen, and we can't stop you any other way right now, so this is how we're going to do it. Do you still feel as you did when we met a few years ago that your father had some hand in that? I know he, you said he had worked at the post office and the two of you had a fraught relationship. Well, he, yeah, he left at four. I never saw him again. So it, yeah, I mean, we didn't have a relationship. And he passed away when I was 20 due to his addiction to alcohol. And he was not alive when I was 22. But you know, if you really take a look at your life and you look at all the different people in your life, and you look at all the circumstances you've had in your life, you know, you can start to see things that are really unexplainable. Like this logically, it doesn't make much sense. But, you know, to think that my dad worked at a post office and got fired and that what would actually be the life-saving moment of my life was to be arrested at a post office. I think that to me is the cosmic humor. And I think that was the amends my dad made to me. And that was a strong realization I got at 11.11 on a full moon that night, 11.11 p.m., uh, that my dad somehow played a role to help that to happen. And and I, I, I'm i totally cool with that. You know, as, however you want to look at that, it's okay. Uh, but I believe that that's, that's part of what happened too. I, I do think it speaks to the power of the work you do, that we do choose the stories we tell ourselves about our lives. When my grandmother died. It was a very difficult time. She opted not to have heart surgery because she was terrified that if she did survive, she would fall into dementia, stroke out, need to be taken care of hand and foot by her ailing sister. And she had done that for her family. So that wasn't the life she wanted for us. So she opted not to have the heart surgery. And not all of us could see her before she died, myself included, because of my own injuries. They were afraid that I had a potential stroke or an aneurysm, so I couldn't travel. And after the funeral, I was hiking on the trail. Her name was Rosalind, so Rose was her nickname. And it was toward the end of November, and there underneath this mailbox was this one stubborn pink rose sticking out of the snow. And I know a good deal of my family believes in spiritual visitation, kind of ancestor worship and respect. It's part of the culture and the heritage. I don't know if I could speak to that being or feeling any or having any truth to it. But I know when I saw that rose under the mailbox that day, I said hi to her. Yeah. I couldn't tell you with certainty why. I felt like that was the right thing to do, but I did. Mm -hmm. And I love that. It's a choice we make. I can continue to reaffirm that choice and think about what that might mean for the rest of how I view the world and change that accordingly, too. But I get to decide. And I think the kind of journey you take people on, this need they come to you for, the surface, I'm addicted to a thing, even if I'm being treated for it you providing them with a the moment and the realization that there's more to the addiction than what they were willing either to recognize or express most of the time, to help them revise that personal narrative, to understand more of it, find greater truths to their world, their story, their characters. We talk a lot about on the show how the truths lead and define us. But if you, as you're saying, find more truth and greater truth, deeper truth, the things toward the bottom of the ocean, right at the heart, right? those are what will guide you to what you want out of life. Those are what we, even if we're selling cars, even if we're selling life insurance, people come to us for those things because there's a life they want. People come to you, come to me, because there's a thing they hope to achieve. And the ritual, the routine, the practice we give them makes a little bit of that journey easier, I think. Yeah, that's well said, exactly. A lot of people tell me, well, I'm just doing this. And I'm like, well... What you're doing is 
the work of the creator. You're doing exactly what we need you to be doing right now. So it's not that you're just doing this. That's exactly what you're supposed to be doing, impacting the people and the people that I can't reach. I know you have to go, but I want to share this little piece because I think it speaks to who you are and what you do. I ran to this fellow at PodFest and we were sitting down at a random session and started talking. And he shared with me this realization he had, which I'll pass on to you, the audience as well. He said, I used to think as an entrepreneur that I'm the hero of my journey, that everything I do is for me and what I want and what I need and everything against me is a challenge or a piece of adversity in my life. And so then I discovered that I form my clients and the guide in their journey. I'm the sage, the one who gives them that little bit of advice that helps them just a little bit on the way, or maybe even a lot of it, but I'm just there for them here in this moment. He said, that was immensely humbling for me, but it also made it so much easier to provide for them because I could see what they need instead of what I do. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Well said. Jesse, where can people find you in your book? I would say my, go to Amazon, get the book, If Not You, Then Who?, um, that's where you can read my story. And then if you want to reach out to me personally, just go to jesseharless.com. Any last words, piece of advice, something you could you would suggest to people as a first thing to do or try today? Yeah, I would say just breathe. <laughs> Real, realize that what you're doing is okay. And that you're doing exactly what you need to do to keep yourself safe, whether that's hurting you or not. That's what you're doing in the moment. And just breathe. And if you are in a situation that you do need help, reach out for help. And that's could be, you know, that that this could be the best day of your life right now by reaching out for help. If there's anything you'd like us to include in the show notes, any links, et cetera, both for your book and resources, as well as any other addiction resources you want us to provide, please let me know. And I look forward to finishing your book. It's been a fascinating read so far. Jesse, thank you again for joining us on the show today. Yeah, Jared, thank you so much. It was a hunter. A good story can excite us, yes. But the best ones, fiction or not, compel, inspire, or drive us toward the hope that we need for a better life. Remember, you don't need to know everything right now, but you do need to write. So make sure to like, review, and subscribe to us at Here Be Tigers. And until next time, take life by the tail. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.